Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Well, welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Nina's not here. My koala is here, much quieter than Nina, and doesn't make fun of me. But she's sick and half our staff are sick, and isn't that what winter is in Melbourne? Look, today, quite a big agenda on. We're talking about some of the very significant changes that have come through with secure jobs. Also, obviously, talking about the change to the national minimum wage and award wages. But a couple of things I wanted to talk about at the start, and I'll come back to at the end. We've put together a psychological hazards training, which we really encourage you to reach out. It's an incredibly practical guide. It's not just the lawyer's guide. It's how you do it, and it comes with templates and methods of actually implementing what we're talking about. It's been some of the number of clients have reached out. So you'll get a slide at the end that tells you about that. And we're also developing a crisis management training program as things like the Hawthorne Football Club and other examples arise where people don't understand the key nature of communications and law working together and what they should actually be. And we've built actually a risk matrix around how you communicate and what is the legal intervention. So we'll talk about that more in a month or so time. But let's kick off now with award wages and what has occurred. Probably all of you understand that the headline inflation rate is at 7.1%. If you own a house at the moment, you're acutely aware of that. Full bench the Fair Work Commission have struck the new national minimum wage. And remember, that splits between two types of things, which one to award wages and then the national minimum wage, which is non-award-based employees, represents about 0.7% of all employees in Australia. For the award wage, that's been increased by 5.75% that starts on 1 July. Pretty substantial, but what's interesting about this is this is the first time in a long time, as long as I can remember, and I'm not a young man, that the full bench of the Fair Work Commission and the prior entities that undertook this work have struck a rate which is beneath inflation. So in real terms, award-based employees will lose value in the money they receive going forward. What's happened with the national minimum wage is that's been increased by, I think, I'm just trying to look down at my notes, it's 8.6%. So it's the 5.75%, but the way in which the national minimum wage is set is as a percentage of C4 classification, C14 classification on the manufacturer's board, and that's been changed to C13, which has increased it by 2 plus bit more percent paying the total 8.6%. At that wage level, it's still not a lot of money that we're talking about. So we're starting to see the Fair Work Commission recognise the inflationary pressures that come with wages. They've probably made tougher decisions than our Reserve Bank. But we're going to start to see enormous pressure because this will be a unionised issue that goes forward about people being paid correctly now. So be aware there will be a union push that follows this and this will be a bit of a stalking horse to get into businesses. Let's go forward to the next issue, okay? Migration is a pretty vexed issue, and as you understand, Labor really struggle with migration, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is Labor don't traditionally like, or the union movement doesn't like migrant workers, so there is a resistance to actually permit it, and it always becomes more difficult under Labor, oddly enough. Secondly, there is the protective part of the labour ethos, which is people are not to be paid poorly. And we remember the 7-Eleven case three or four years ago, which led to the amendments to the Fair Work Act, where migrant workers were being required or requested to do work outside of their visa entitlements. And 
outside the hours of contract for a lesser amount. And, of course, the young kids who were doing that were chasing money, and they did. Now it's very clear, and I think it comes in, and I'm going to guess, having a look at my notes, I'm pretty sure this starts, it starts early. I think it started on the 6th of June, but maybe a little bit later. What this means is if you seek to coerce anyone to breach their visa, that's a criminal offence. If you require people to work longer than their awards, it'll be a criminal offence. And really oddly, the person who's going to regulate this is Australian Border Force. Now, I don't know. Nina, what do you think? Yeah. Why would you introduce another regulator into workplace relations? Why wouldn't this sit with the Fair Work Ombudsman where it properly belongs? But look, that's what's happened. And because of the visa part of this, it's stayed, stayed with Australian Border Force, they've been given a lot of money to actually make it work, but they're not people who are skilled in employment matters and really should never have been part of it. But look, it's a good thing, okay? Good thing, someone breaches their visa conditions, they go to see Australian Border Force, they're not going to be chucked out of the country because they did a wrong that was required of them. So there's a level of protection that comes with it for these people as well. That's some new law. Let's look at some old sort of case law and let's look around a police officer. It's a matter of Fleming and Commissioner of Police in New South Wales. Pardon me. He was a guy who had a bad leak. He's 65 years of age. He had a checkered history within the police force. He was an imaging employee. He wasn't the mainline police, police force member. He had performance improvement plans in the past. He'd been required to do various training. So he wasn't a perfect employee, but he'd been in the force for a long period of time. So there he was in the engine leg, catching a train to work. Train was stopped because of industrial action. He got out of the train. He had to walk four kilometres to the next station to get another train. And of course, his leg was very angry. He saw some railway workers and he took some fairly aggressive action towards him. Police were called. And the issue was whether his conduct was sufficient to terminate his employment. And the police force did terminate his employment. And what was said by the Commission in this case, um, and New South Wales law is slightly different than the Fair Work Commission law around reinstatement, but it's still a primary remedy is, clearly a valid reason. It was harsh in the circumstances. He'd had long periods of good behaviour. There were exceptional circumstances that occurred. He did have a right of reinstatement, and he was reinstated with a final warning. And the question that you want to ask about that is, well, look, why would someone who does criminal behaviour being a member of police force, and this is quasi-criminal behaviour, as a member of the police force, why would he be reinstated? And I guess the reason that Matt chose, Matt and Abby chose this case was to highlight that when reinstatement is a primary remedy, unless you can show it goes to the heart of what they do, that they no longer, in their work, you can have trust and confidence in them, then they're going to be reinstated. And this is sort of quite a dramatic example. We've got a case a little bit later on which shows the other side of the coin. But I want you to remember when you're looking at disciplining someone, the worst at terminating someone's employment, the worst thing that could ever happen is they're reinstated. That is the worst thing that can happen. So be aware of the lesson in this case. Let's move on to the next case and we'll come to one where there's a bit difference later on. 9 June, um, the ACTU changes around sexual assault being a notifiable incident to the safety regulator come in. This is with an actual or apprehended sexual assault. The obligation to notify is immediate. It's not like the Victorian legislation, uh, regulation and code when it comes in, which will have a six-monthly reporting obligation around sexual harassment, which includes sexual assault, bullying, violence in the workplace and the like. This is only in relation actual or apprehended sexual assault and it is immediately notifiable as an incident. So 
is a very significant change. And what we're seeing with safety regulators around Australia is a lot of thin end of the wedge stuff by creating a new piece of law. And we started this with no insurance around safety prosecutions. You notice Safe Work Australia came out with the argument around it. It started off in one jurisdiction that spread across Australia. We don't see things being done collectively. What we see is something going out and being tried, and I'm sure we're going to see the ACTU changes spread across Australia in the next two or three years, particularly given where secure, secure jobs and respect work have dealt with these issues, there's much greater focus on protecting women in the environment. And it's an interesting thing when we see safety regulators in Victoria prosecuting sexual harassment, we are starting to see the change happening in regulated behaviour as well. Right, Duthwaite, which is the next case. This is, in some ways, a case which really tests the understanding of how a whole lot of law comes together. So Duthwaite was a remote nurse. He stopped in a town on his way to where he was going to work. So he was during his employment. This is what we normally call journey, the journey of employment. He went out to get some food. Where he went out to get some food, there was a group of young women. He went with them to a park, and when he was at the park, he was mugged and his wallet was stolen. He suffered a serious brain hemorrhage. I'm not sure. I think it had a lasting effect on him, actually psychologically, but, but it quite significant damage done to him. He put in a workers' compensation claim. The issue he raised is, look, this was part of my journey for work and therefore I should be compensated. But the case law, and you see the case of Comcare and PVYW, which is the sex in the hotel case, I'm sorry, we've got to keep referring to that, talks about intervals between work and whether there was something that was a substantial deviation from work that wasn't part of work behaviour. And what the court held in this case is, look, going and getting food is part of the journey. It's not a substantial deviation from what would be expected to happen. People have to wait. It's reasonable. But then going off with a group of young women into a park, nothing unrelated to getting food and doing the normal part of his work, is a very significant deviation. And even on appeal, because he ran this appeal as well, his claim was rejected. So we're going to come and deal with some of the facts in this case in our problem for today just to actually test out or what about other pieces of law? How do they treat this out-of-work behaviour? And why is it sometimes workers' compensation does accept claims and sexual discrimination doesn't accept a claim, for instance? So we'll talk about that one a little bit later. Let's go on to our next case. And this is the case that I sort of forewarned you about a little bit earlier, which is Honeck. Honeck was a process worker. She had accepted workers' compensation claim. She was directed to go to a number of capacity tests to an IME, all of which she refused. She just didn't turn up at. When they asked for about it, she presented medical certificates which weren't terribly accurate, saying she wasn't fit. And eventually they alleged that she was abandoning her employment because she simply wouldn't return to work and do what was required of her. Now, abandonment of employment is like a frustration of employment. Ten years ago, most of the enterprise agreements would have had if you don't attend work for a period of three days, you're deemed to have abandoned work. As you all know now, if you try and put an enterprise agreement in like that, it will be rejected. What you've got to show from abandonment employment is a person shows a positive disregard for the attendance of work. They're not going to come to work. So this was a really odd decision to run the case this way, particularly when there are the Fair Work Ombudsman case and a few others, which talk about a person who continually fails to comply with the lawful and reasonable direction. It's so much easier and more sensible process because they would have succeeded against it. Nonetheless, the claim came before the Fair Work Commission and the Fair Work Commission made it very clear that this is the type of behaviour which does breach that sort of trust and confidence. You can never trust this person to be an employee. 
come back to work. So reinstatement was not on the agenda. Not only that, the time at which it would have taken to fix the procedure was broken in two weeks. The person received workers' compensation payment, so therefore was not entitled to compensation. So you see the two cases we've got today. We've got one where a policeman does something on the way to work. It's stupid. It's dumb. It's not in keeping with the nature of what the person does for a job but it doesn't go to the heart of what the person does. Here we've got a person who simply won't do what they're required to do when they return to work or comply with any lawful and reasonable direction. You can't return a person to work like that. So can you see where the rub is between those two things? That's why when you're looking at termination and there's risk around it, make sure you've got the evidence that that relationship of trust and confidence is broken. Big changes. Let's move on to secure jobs. It's very hard with that, Nina, here, because I've got to remember things. She remembers everything, you see, and I, I'm... A bit old, a bit demented. I don't remember everything. So let's talk about the second tranche of secure jobs. There's really only three major changes that come through. We're actually going to send out to everybody who watches us a couple of page handout which gives you in a high level summary exactly what has happened and gives you a link to all the detail you need. So if you're bored now, you can switch off. I'm just going to give you a high level detail. The major changes we see affecting day-to-day -day life, and there are some which just simply won't impact 99% of people. First is flexible work and unpaid parental leave, and that is the capacity of someone to request that and be provided with that unless there are good business reasons not to do it. What these changes do is put a much greater responsibility on employers to actually document those business reasons, and particularly when you look at employees who are pregnant, who have domestic violence issues, who have caring responsibility, primary caring responsibilities, the Fair Commission will have a capacity to intervene and make orders. Now, that didn't exist before. And so I guess what I want to say about this is there's some really key learning about this, isn't it? And that is it's very common that this request just comes through an operation person who just flogs it off to HR and says, HR, can we deal with it? HR doesn't know the business reasons. This is now a very deliberate process that needs a consultative process between operations and HR to build a substantive business case if it is going to be rejected. But on every occasion in which a person puts in a request for flexible work or extended parental leave, there must be that consultation that occurs between operations and HR to have a consistent approach. Because what you can't have is an uneven system. Why? It's a psychological hazard. We know that for a fact. Secondly, it goes straight to the heart of discrimination. And we see probably over the last 10 years, more claims of discrimination arise around determination or change in work function of a person returning from parental leave or seeking flexibility around parental leave or extension of parental leave. We see a lot of discrimination litigation and adverse action claims in this area more than any other. So the answer here is step back, learn what you need to do and build a deliberate process. The next issue that is changing is bargaining disputes. Now, this provision came in for a very good reason. That is, there was a capacity to terminate an enterprise agreement which has caused enormous ill will, particularly with unions. So you can now get what's called an intractable bargaining order, which will allow the Commission to make a decision based on what is the dispute that exists between the parties. You've got to have nine months of intractable dispute, and at that stage you can make application to the Commission. The Commission will intervene and will give an order, an award, as to what your enterprise bargaining would be. So this is a back-end pressure, isn't it? If you feel you've got a good bargaining position, you should build it towards a point which has that as a backdoor for you, where you know what you're going to get is what you want. And it's not hard to back unions into a corner where they're seeking to 
pursue an agenda item and one that's not firmly held by their employees. And the longer a bargaining process goes on, the less it is about employees and the more it is about agendas. But it would be a very bad place to be, to be 10 to 15 months into a bargain and not have a deal. So the simple rules around enterprise bargaining never changed. Be close to your employees, know what they want, make sure that your communication is better than the unions and that what you are doing creates both productivity and return to employees and the business. You do that, you don't have these problems. But it's an analytical piece that needs to be done. And once again, it is a deliberate exercise a year before the enterprise bargaining expires. Now, that's what that is. The third part is looking at enterprise agreements and what is in, in enterprise agreements. Can I say the really big issue here is the better off overall test. It will cease being a line by line better off overall test and reverts to the global test of what it is, which gives you greater flexibility inside an enterprise agreement where you can craft the conditions to the nature of your work so long as people are better off overall and that can be tested from time to time by changing work relationships, okay? So good stuff, actually, really, really good stuff. The second major change that sits behind it, and it's not really a major change, it actually aligns with current law, is when will an enterprise agreement be approved by the Fair Work Commission? And what it requires you to do is to show that in the bargaining process, the people involved are representative of the group of people who will be employed in the business, that not only are they representative but present from the various classifications, that they have been given a proper understanding of what the various arguments are all the way through, that they have an adequate and proper opportunity to listen and understand it. This is all the cases over the last few years. The problem is the old old methods of shoving through greenfields with your two cousins voting on it have gone, okay? So the methods we used to use, I say we because I guess I was part of it 20 years ago, where you would build a group of people, some representatives, some not, who would be voting on it. If they don't form part of that classification group, they cannot be part of the voting, okay? If they don't represent truly the nature of the business that's being carried on, then it will not be an effective vote. And then all the normal rules that existed before, and these have been generated, those rules were generated by the President of the, court, of, the, of the Commission. So what we are seeing is a much fairer, more open process, and I think what we're going to see is no increase in unionism because of it. So the, the irony here is we've seen a decrease in unionism over the last 20 years, a very dramatic decline from about 48% to under 10% in the private sector. None of this is great for unions, okay? People keep saying it is, but it's actually not. All this is requiring is the same sort of fairness that court decisions are required for a long period of time. The better off overall test really helps employers. It's a great thing because it allows us to recraft conditions to actually fit a business. So it's a real benefit. Can I make that clear? This is not something which is pro-union. This is something which gives employers more levers than they've had for the last five to ten years. Now, there's also a number of different types of enterprise agreements around joint ventures and stuff. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. It affects very few of you, and if you're in an environment where you need to do a multi-employment agreement or a, or a joint venture style of agreement, then just talk to us. process is really simple, and there's opportunities to do it. Again, it's not putting a foot through the door for the unions, it's creating a practical pathway for employers or collections of employers to actually have a predictable and sensible pathway. So nothing in here should scare you, is my point. None of this is scary at all. All of this is just cleaning up some stuff which really need to be cleaned up. When we look at flexible work and parental leave, so many cases around this issue. 
so many different ways of treating people who are primary carers based on whether you liked them, didn't like them, whether you failed to performance manage them before and you should have, all those sort of issues. Okay, now a deliberate process, you must actually structure it, you must build the competence inside and you must deal with it fairly. When you then go on and look at bargaining disputes, that all started with Boeing, well, it was 25 years ago, the Boeing case where they had a dispute that went on for two years, crazy stuff. Eventually people used what was an arcane method that sat within both the Fair Work Act and also the Workplace Relations Act of terminating an enterprise agreement in such circumstances. They had to be drastic circumstances. And then there was, uh, I think it was Curtin University, it might not have been Curtin in Western Australia, who terminated a much, a really bad case in a whole number of ways. But what it did was galvanise a union's understanding that by manipulating the people who could vote, in that case, overwhelmingly administrative people voted against academic staff, you could change the complete structure of an organisation by deliberately creating a dispute. That would be a union argument. I think all of us agree that that's unjust and stupid. There's a dumb way to go about doing stuff. The way to create change is to get people aligned. It's not to hit them with an axe. And that was what was done. So what this provides is a simple mechanism. Why wouldn't we have a mechanism where the Fair Work Commission then determines the dispute? That's what it's all about. Okay. And the last part around enterprise agreement, better off overall test, can I just say, wonderful stuff, rules around bargaining, what's accepting as agreement, just the clarity of what exists in court proceedings. So when I hold this up and show it to you, nothing new, nothing new, just some things that are better for employers, reduce the level of risk. But if you don't do what I say, dramatically increase your level of just risk. Why don't we move on to the problem for today? I don't normally read this and I'm blind, so let's go, Sally. Gladys was an account manager at Glamour Online Shopping, Goss. She worked at the Melbourne office. Her boss, Tom, was located in Geelong. Goss arranged a sales convention at the RACV in Torquay. I like it by down there, by the way. Prior to the event, Goss sent out an email reminding people about responsible behaviour, explaining what work, what is work, and what is not work. The phrase in the policy that was circulated read, at all times you are a representative of GOSS when attending conventions. Therefore, the responsible conduct rules around outside of work behaviour apply at all times. However, if you leave the convention premises or otherwise undertake activities not contemplated by the convention agenda, you are taken to engage in non-work-related activities. Gladys and Tom left after post-day one convention drinks and went to the surf club for dinner. At the dinner, they consumed three bottles of wine. A good night. Late in the evening, Tom caught up with a friend from Geelong. His name was Travis. Travis was very drunk and obviously formed a crush on Gladys. Over the next two hours, he said increasingly sexualised comments and jokes in a flawed attempt to seduce Gladys. It was obvious to a sober person that Travis' attempts were humiliating and hurtful to Gladys, and she did not consent to the commentary. But Tom just laughed along and made some comments himself, not to seduce her, but to make her feel good and be part of the joke. He didn't realise, because he was so drunk, the impact it was having on Gladys and Travis's intention. Gladys got up to leave. She spoke harshly to Travis, saying, No, Marie, you're sleazy crap, Travis, I'm going. As she got up to go, Travis tried to get up and cuddle her. In an instant, Tom realised what was happening, and he hit Travis, knocking him to the ground. He was subsequently arrested and charged by police. The assault was reported in the Geelong Advertiser, identifying Tom, his employer, and the convention. Right, the first question was, Gladys put in a workers' compensation claim 
will she be successful? Nina? No, Nina's not going to tell us today. So the answer to that is it's unlikely she would be successful for a couple of reasons. One, it was a significant deviation from the nature of work that was required to be undertaken and from the process of the convention. Two, because the words in the convention policy that was sent out made it very clear it would not be work if they left or did something which was not part of that agenda. So her claim would fail. Gladys made a sexual harassment claim. Will she be successful? Now, here's the irony, isn't it? The irony is she is out with the boss. And though it's not work for the purpose of workers' compensation, discrimination and harassment law is a very benevolent piece of legislation designed to protect employees. I think there is little doubt that Gladys' sexual harassment claim would be successful. That is because she was with the boss, the boss was providing drinks, it was the boss's mate, and he failed to intervene and he had an obligation to intervene and protect her. So I reckon her claim's got a good chance of getting up. Now, there's a case called Keenan which would say, and Keenan was a case where Keenan Layton, where a guy came along to a Christmas function, got drunk, was pretty offensive for the whole night. After the function was over, he went upstairs and sexually harassed the HR manager, perhaps the most stupid man in the world. But he didn't bring a sexual harassment claim. He was terminated. Fair Work Act is a benevolent piece of legislation designed to protect workers. It was held to be out of work for the purpose of his claim. But there is no doubt at all if the HR manager and Kenyon Layton had brought the claim, she would have been successful. Do you see the irony and how they just don't quite fit together? And that's why this law is so hard. Tom's employment was summarily terminated. Will he be able to make a successful unfair dismissal claim? Well, remember, out-of-work behaviour, which is Telstra and Rose, looks at is he able to come back to work? In other words, did he effectively damage his work relationship with those he worked with? No, he could not come back and, and be supervisor to Gladys under no circumstances at all could he do that. I suspect he's in real trouble. Did it affect the reputation of the organisation? Yes. So under at least two of the limbs of Telstra and Rose, and you only need one of them, his out-of-work behaviour was relevant to the purpose of a termination claim. I don't think Tom would successfully claim unfair dismissal. Now, what's our last one? I think we've got a number four. WorkSafe are investigating the sexual harassment of Gladys. Can they prosecute? And if so, who? Interesting, isn't it? So you'd feel that the WorkSafe could, but the problem is it was not a workplace. And workplace is actually defined under legislation. Now, it's not very well defined. It's a very generic definition. But I think that they would really struggle to actually mount a prosecution, partly because it's a criminal pardon me, a criminal proceeding and it'll be read down quite harshly by a court as to what is a workplace, so it'll be read narrowly. Secondly, because under no circumstance was this a workplace in the ordinary meaning of the word. And remember, when you look at legislative language, unless it has a technical meaning, okay, and that's a, where cases have given words and meaning over time, you go to the definition, the definition is generic, you then read it giving its ordinary and natural meaning. A workplace is a place that people work at the surf club at Torquay is not a place that people work at. They were not working. There was nothing about their behaviour that suggested they were working. Therefore, it is not a workplace that WorkSafe could successfully prosecute again. So the answer is WorkSafe could not prosecute. The psychological hazards that Gladys was subjected to couldn't do it because not a workplace. Had it been a workplace, they could have successfully prosecuted. They could have prosecuted Tom and 
possibly because Tom is part of the leadership, part of the leadership group in the organisation, the organisation as well. So there you go. Today we've got it all. Let's have a look at this next slide because I really want you to call us and have a look at this. We've gone to enormous trouble to provide you with the law, the psychological evidence that sits behind it, and also the practical methods you can take for each part of it, what you need and how to do it, along with giving you many of the templates that you need for this. It's something that Nina and I have spent hours of work. Please have a go. Take us up on it. We're really excited about doing it. Well, let's come back to where we are now. I'll be here next week. Hopefully, Nina will be here. Can you give us a thumbs up? And I really did miss Nina, and the koala just doesn't cut it. See you later, guys. Bye-bye.